Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Consuelo Mack. On this week's WealthTrack podcast, an exclusive interview with investment legend Charles Ellis and his compelling case for indexing. Hello and welcome to this WealthTrack podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. Charlie Ellis is a globally recognized financial thought leader, investment advisor to governments, institutions, and endowments, professor of advanced investment courses at top universities, and author of several investment classics, including Winning the Loser's Game, and his latest book, Figuring It Out. He joins us for an exclusive interview on his compelling case for indexing, why after decades of helping clients find the best money managers to achieve superior financial results, did he switch to recommending indexing? As Keynes said, when the facts change, I change my mind, what do you do? And I think the facts have changed and changed and changed in such a way that what used to be a sensible proposition, that bright, talented, hardworking people willing to do extensive research on individual companies could from time to time find superior opportunities and therefore create portfolios that would have a higher rate of return than the market and they could therefore charge a fee and more than earn the fee with those returns. And that in the 60s and the 70s, I believe, was really, really true. Not all the time, but it was worth going out to find managers who could do it. And are today, there are managers I know that can do that sort of work, but they're very, very few. They manage relatively small amounts of money. Most of us have never heard of any of them in terms of their capabilities or what they're doing. And they don't give a damn that we haven't figured out who they are because they've got plenty of clients that they have been able to find by quietly speaking to individuals of discerning capabilities at selecting managers and finding those managers and working with them. Uh, it's going on, but it's very rare. And for most of us, and particularly for all of us who work with quote-unquote famous name investment managers, we should stop using active management because it doesn't earn enough to cover its own costs. And the, there are three kinds of costs. Taxes, which individuals do have to pay. Right. Uh, I recognize many institutions don't have taxes, but if you have taxes, it's worth keeping that in mind as one of the real costs. The second is operating costs, and it's not everyday operating costs. It's on those dreadful days when everybody wants to go in the same direction, either to buy or to sell or to move in a particular direction. That day or week is a very expensive day for doing transactions, and if you spread that over time, operating costs are real. And then fees and fees, which were raised in the 60s and raised again in the 70s, raised again in the 80s, have peaked out, but they're still pretty darned high. And they are very high in terms of relative to rate of return increments being achieved. So I think if you look at the total cost picture, you can understand why 
indexing is able to achieve a better result in almost all cases than active management. Tell me what's changed from when active management did work in the 60s and 70s, and why doesn't it work anymore? Virtually everything in the market has changed. First of all, we've all known for years and years and years that in any market, if there are only a few players, it's a very inefficient market, and you, if you're a pretty good player, you can take advantage of that inefficiency. As more and more players participate, it becomes more and more likely to be efficient. And as it becomes more and more efficient, it's harder and harder to do better than just settling for the average or the index. So that's the reality we know in lots of different markets. When we come to the securities markets, just think about the change. I mean, they've just been astonishing. If you take from since I first got involved in the early 60s to today, just take volume for an example. It's gone from 3 million shares a day on the New York Exchange to, what, 8 billion mm -hmm. shares a day on average. I mean, that's it's phenomenal. That's 3,000 times <laughs> increase. That's very few things ever changed that much. Oh, but there's another change that's been at least as important. What is that? It's gone from the market was dominated by amateurs, individuals who bought or sold every year or two in odd lots, and half the time they did their transactions in AT&T, and they didn't know anything because there was no research made available to them. So they were reading the business press or they knew people or they might have some thoughts, but they were not buying with the thought that they would then be quickly selling. They were buying to save for their kids' education or save to buy a home or save for retirement. It was all long-term thinking, and they were just doing a sensible sort of investing. Were they hard to beat? No, they weren't hard to beat. If there was a research-based judgment that could be made, you could be pretty darn sure that they would make mistakes. There was a time, I remember when I was a young analyst in the chemical industry, DuPont was selling for more than 30 times earnings. Why? Because it had a fabulous record of a great corporation having created wonderful products like nylon, but just one after another after mm -hmm. another. However, nylon was no longer under monopoly, un under patent protection. And so there was going to be competition, and the price of nylon was guaranteed to be coming down. DuPont had a rule that they did not borrow money. They had a rule that they paid out 50% of earnings in dividends. So you knew how much they had to invest in future earnings was one half of their earnings per year. Okay, but what if the earnings slowed down a little bit? This would compound negatively for them. And if nylon's prices were coming down, then DuPont's profitability was guaranteed to be coming down. 32 times earnings. Why in the world was up there? Because it always had been. And because it was a great blue chip company. And because people buying it weren't paying much attention to the economics of the earning process. They were just keeping a reputation of this great and wonderful company. Did it get cut in half? You bet. And other companies went up. But, you know, what a terrible experience that was for mm -hmm. DuPont, shareholders. Mm -hmm. But if you were an active manager, it was like shooting fish in a barrel to say, I'm getting out of DuPont. I'm going to buy something else that's going to be a better value. And the same sort of thing the other way around. IBM was easy to figure out that that was going to be a great company. 
It had so many different things going for it. It was the dominant factor in a major industry that was global, scale, and rapid growth. And it was master of its trade, selling for a multiple in the 20s. Wow, what a difference. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, IBM doubled at the same time that DuPont got cut in half. With that kind of change, it was relatively easy to find opportunities to do better than the market average. But if you look at all the changes that have taken place, think about first you go from 90% of trading was done by individuals, maybe 10% was done by institutions, but the institutions were primarily a thousand trust companies all over the country for personal trust normal asset values, nobody doing very much research, and they were buying blue chip stocks off an approved list. Were they easy to beat if you had research of an original nature? Sure, but that's the way it was. Yeah. Flip that around. In just 50 years, it's gone from 90% individuals to 90% professionals. Then the professionals know everything all the time. Right. Everybody has access to the same information. They've all got Bloomberg terminals. Right. They've all got the internet. They all are subject to regulation FD, fair disclosure. No listed company is allowed to give any investor any advantage on information. Mm -hmm. And if they give you information, they've got to give it to me and everybody else at best at the same time. We used to have private lunches and private dinners and private meetings with management and learn all kinds of things back in the 60s. That's against the law today. And nobody does it at all. But what a change that is. Mm. And then think of computing power. Everybody's got computing power. I carry a cell phone that's got more power than a 360 computer when IBM was proud of having the most powerful system in the world. Right. And my little cell phone's even more powerful. Woo. What a device to have. Everybody's got computing power as much as they want to have anytime they want to have it. Quantitative models are all over the place, putting parameters around the minimum and maximum in individual securities. If you look at the number of people who are in the business of being in active management, there might have been 5,000 people 60 years ago. How many are there today? I don't know for sure, but I know it's well over 500,000, mm-hmm. and it's probably closer to a million all over the world. The markets used to be the British invested in the United Kingdom, the French invested in France, the Germans invested in Germany, the Canadians invested in Canada, except they did a little bit of technology investing in the United States. The Aussies invested in Australia. Now everybody invests in everybody else's market all the time. So dominant movement back and forth is just fantastic. And the stock market is connected to the debt market, which is connected with the oil market, which is connected with every commodity market around the country. And all of them are connected to all the different currency markets. So there's an unbelievable, phenomenal change in the way in which prices are being set and the participants in the market. So the market has become more and more and more and more and more efficient. One of the most important of those changes is the quality of the investment management teams. Investment management firms, if you said, gee, Charlie, how hard would it be for me to find a really good investment manager? I said, well, if you're looking for a really good investment manager in terms of professional talent and training and certification, if you're looking for a firm that has unbelievable computing power, if you're looking for a firm that has access to superb information of any kind they want at any time, if you're looking for a firm that has a terrific capability as an investment organization, 
They're easy to find. They're all over the place. That's the problem. There's so many of them that are so darn good that to be better than the others is really, really, really hard. And so what do you do in a circumstance like that? Well, one is you say, you know, if everybody's got it figured out in aggregate, if the whole crowd has got it figured out so well that I can't do better than they're doing, is there a way I could tag on with? Yes, there is. Right. You could tag on with by indexing. Well, what, what else can you offer me as an advantage? Oh, indexing is cheap, and indexing has low tax costs. Gee, that's interesting. And what else? Well, it's got great diversification advantages. And uh, it does mean that you're not going to have the privilege of being one of the active managers that do better. Well, tell me about that privilege. How many active managers actually do better than the market they're trying to beat? Well, the data that we're getting out of SPIVA, which is the most rigorous collection of data, and right. it's systematic, would say 85% of the managers fall short of the index they're trying to beat. Now, when they fall short, they fall short, unfortunately, by quite a lot. In many cases, really terrible mm -hmm. results at some point. But the 15% that do better, how much better do they do? Not much better, just a little bit better. Well, tell me about the 15%. How do I pick them up? I want to be sure I can identify that top 15%. There's no known way of doing that. We've studied and studied, studied ways of trying to figure out who they will be. All we know is there's a random characteristic that every once in a while somebody shows up in that top 15 and nobody stays there. You mean the top 15%, 85% of them will be outside the winning circle next time around? You know, if you give me a 15-year time horizon, that's the most reasonable estimate of what it would be. So it's really tough out there. And then if you think, well, I'm trying to invest for the long term, 15 years isn't all that long. Actually, 15 years happens half a dozen times in the career of a typical investor. Um, I'm asking for trouble if I'm doing anything but indexing, aren't I? The answer is, yes, you are. Well, tell me something about this. Why isn't everybody indexing? Well, first of all, there was a time when active management really did work better. Right. And then there was a long time when people were sure that active would be back, that active would have its day in the sun, that it would come back. It, it's got to. And that's fairly normal. Uh, and there's another thing. that Indexing got stuck with a dreadful name. What, what's that? Passive? Oh, yeah, that's right. Passive indexing is passive investing. What's wrong with passive? Well, it depends. If you're an electrical engineer, passive is the wall socket that you stick the two or three prong plug into, and there's no negative to the active or passive. Those are just technology terms. But if you don't happen to be an electrical engineer and you're not thinking that way, the word passive has a very negative connotation. Have you ever heard of a campaign for political leadership? Vote for so-and-so. He's passive. No, I never have. Have you ever heard anybody recommend anything that was passive? It is, is interpreted as being a positive right, characteristic or <laughs> right. description, right? So passive is a terrible connotation and terrible terminology. And we still hear people talking about indexing as passive investing. The point is... It's not really passive investing. It's a very deliberate decision to 
take things realistically, a deliberate decision to look at the facts as the facts really are, a deliberate decision, and, and that's an active decision, uh, an active decision to say, I'm going to use indexing, and an active decision to decide which index, because there are now more indexes than there are listed securities. And it's worth thinking about which index you really have in mind that would work well for you. There happen to be more indexes than there are stocks listed. And so you get a freedom of choice. Which index do you really want to go with? And there are lots of different possibilities that are available as to which index would make the most sense. But the discipline of indexing is step number one. Step number two is the active decision as to which index you're going to use, the active decision as to how much you're going to put into equities as opposed to other securities or investments, an active decision as to how you're going to decide what your investment program is, and an active decision to stay with indexing. So when you're talking about we should all index, what are you talking about? What kind of indexes are you talking about where you actually will be the most successful investor long-term? Just to give you a few of the fundamentals, you start with the market capitalization index. You can then do value index as opposed to a growth index. You could invest a European index as opposed to an Asian index. Do you recommend that we that we, we put together a portfolio of indexes that are both different styles, different regions? I think everybody ought to choose for themselves. Uh, I personally think the fewer choices you make, the better, the wiser. Uh, trying to be clever usually does not work out very well in the investment world. Uh, in my own case, I do a global index because I believe that's roughly the market capitalization weight is roughly U.S. is half and non-U.S. is half. I've traveled around the world many, many times for extended periods, and I've really enjoyed the privilege of getting to know people in other parts of the world, but also gained great respect for other nations and other economies. So I have no problem with investing outside the United States. Some people would feel, no, I'm an Australian and I want to stay in Australia. Fine. If that's your view and you really hold it, the more you can diversify, the better. And so a wide-ranging index, a broadly diversified index, makes a great deal of sense. One of the benefits of indexing is that you start to say, you know, I really don't know what's happening and I don't care. I really don't know how the market's going and I don't care. I really don't get concerned about the price. I haven't checked the price of an index fund day to day, which I used to do all the time with individual stocks. I'm, I'm much more patient. Patience is a virtue. It helps to be a longer-term investor, and therefore to be a better and more successful investor. So it's a side benefit of indexing is that it's boring, and it's dull as dishwater. Fine. The duller it is, the more it's likely that we won't get excited and do something that will do harm. And when we do do something, we almost always do harm. You had a neat analogy um, about you as a flyer versus your father-in-law, who was a test pilot and has all sorts of records. Can, do, can you tell us about that? Sure. My father-in-law was a, a terrific Navy flyer. and He was not only a terrific guy, he was a two-star admiral. He was commander of the John F. Kennedy, one of the most important warship in the world. And his name was? And his name was Fred Koch. 
Fred was a very calm individual with a marvelous low-key sense of humor and extraordinarily fine values. And he was typical of the senior ranking people in our military. They have all got great values, and that's why they're in the senior ranking. You get critiqued and evaluated on very different criteria all the way up. And each star, as an admiral or a general, you get critiqued on other kinds of broader gauge, more important, more consequential. But this wonderful man happened to love flying. And as he said, I've got the perfect life. I get paid for doing what I most want to do. And he was a very, very good flyer. That's worth keeping in mind that every year, between 1% and 2% of the carrier-based pilots gets killed by accident. It's dangerous business. And F-4 is a fighter bomber. And when it comes into the deck, it's going at a very high speed, about 400 miles an hour, maybe down to 350, somewhere in that range. But it's going real fast, and you either catch the wire or you don't. And if you're landing on an aircraft carrier, all you know for sure is it's tiny. It's a postage stamp. It's an almost nothing when you first see it. And then you've got to take this very fast-moving, very heavy plane and land at just the right place. You either catch the wire or you don't. And it's moving. <laughs> and it's moving. And the swells. Swells. It can throw that flight deck 20, 30, 40 feet by surprise in ways that are very hard to anticipate. And he set a record for what I think is the most unbelievably demanding precision effort. Landing on an aircraft carrier is hard. Doing a landing on an aircraft carrier at sea is very, very hard. Landing at sea at night is incredibly hard. And Fred Koch set a record that will never be touched because pilots don't fly as much as they used to, at sea, at night, carrier landing. He was also the bald eagle, which is the longest serving pilot in the active service. So he was a great flyer. I actually have flown more than he flew. And I fly all the time. Uh, and I do it in a very different way. I get to the airport on time. I get to my seat on time. I buckle up. And I'm pretty snug buckling um, because I learned that that's a good idea. And I do what I'm told at any time by the flight attendant. But I still have to make a major decision. I have to decide whether I'm going to Boston or Chicago or London or Tokyo as part of my responsibility. And uh, I think that's true of all investors. It's one thing to index your operational activities, but you're still responsible for the big decisions. And if you concentrate your thinking and your skills on those big decisions, what are you really trying to accomplish? And what in the long run will achieve that objective? Then you're doing what I think we all should do for ourselves. And that's active investing with indexing, not passive, but indexing implementation. One of your most successful investments has been Berkshire Hathaway over the years. It's one stock. It's not an index fund. Are there exceptions to the indexing is best for the vast majority of us rule? Well, there aren't any exceptions that I know of starting today. But if you started, as I did in the early 1970s, when I made the major investment in Berkshire Hathaway, that was a different era. 
And I do believe that Warren Buffett has been able to add incrementally a nice increased rate of return and also a very nice reduction in risk taking. And the combination, I believe, has been terrific. Charlie Ellis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Consuelo. For previous interviews with Charlie Ellis, visit Wealthtruck.com and please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. In the meantime, make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one. 